we love democracy unless people are going to vote and vote the wrong way. Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Verkula, and this podcast is for the first full week of May 2022. On this podcast, we uh, aim to cover the big stories of the week that have appeared at thisiscommonsense.org. That's Common Sense with Paul Jacob. That's where Paul's been writing commentary weekly, daily, daily, since... 1999? That seems too long. No, it's it's about right. And so here we talk about those pieces that he wrote this last week, the first week of May. This week, it's a little more difficult than usual because Paul's on the road and he's going to be dialing in from his iPhone. So we'll see how it goes. Stick with us. It's been a fun week. Well, you've written five pieces. The one coming out on Friday, I've forgotten the title of already. Just my problem, not yours, probably. But uh... <laughs> Well, it's everybody's at the moment. It's about Florida and the initiative process, which the legislature didn't uh, didn't get around to fully, you know, decimating, which is nice. It is nice. You know, they have passed some ridiculous stuff in Florida. And Ron DeSantis, who sometimes I'm... I, I'm very happy with uh, his uh, his pit ball, pit bull, pit ball, pit bull uh, nature and and uh, kind of standing up and going, what? Uh, Florida's done a lot of things well. He is terrible on initiative and referendum. He would like to get rid of the process. And there's a there's a group of Republicans. I bumped into it on the uh, in Missouri a few years ago, speaking to a number of Republicans in the legislature and Secretary of State and so on, who believe that the founders, and of course, we have to do whatever they say, but the, that the founders really envisioned the legislature making all the decisions. And that if we allow the people to make them directly, that's sort of illegitimate. And somehow, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure we've read some of the same books and stuff, but that's just not my takeaway at all. And, and it, I think it is true that the founders would say, well, whoa, 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 wait, you know, just because you got a majority for that, that's not going to fly. But, but because of constitutional restraints, not because somehow we kept the, the voters away from the ballot box. And, and I, I do think that in in the day and age of 1776, there was a little less trust maybe in the average person casting votes. And I think, you know, I think any intelligent person is, and even not that intelligent person is clued into the fact that, yeah, they can still really screw everything up. I think we just are a little bit more convinced of the fact that, uh, who was it? Maybe Winston Churchill who said, Democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. And, uh, you know, there, there's something about having a check on power, not because that check is flawless and perfect, but because without that check, it's it's horrible. Well, I looked up the piece and it appears to be uh, titled something like uh, Good News for Now. So yes. that apparently is the, <clears throat> the story there. Uh good news in Florida, but like always, there are forces arrayed against uh, the initiative process. 
Yes, yes, because we love democracy unless people are going to vote and vote the wrong way. And then then we can't have it. Right, right. Mondays was about an idea that <laughs> you wonder when they named, uh, you know, the the uh, Homeland Censorship Board. I mean, the uh, uh, Department of Homeland Security has a disinformation governance board. And, you, you know, wouldn't you kind of think that, you know, you have a meeting and you name it, that somebody go, wait, whoa, wait, this doesn't sound right now. This isn't really what the government's supposed to be doing. But, um, but you know, it's run amok. It has completely run amok. And that's what we talked about on Monday. And that's the piece, uh, Homeland Censorship Board. And it's about the uh, Disinformation Governance Board that was just recently created. Is that right? Yes. And, of course, is headed by someone who believes that free speech is not a good thing and that people cannot say stuff that doesn't jive with, you know, the powers that be, especially if, if she's one of the powers that be. And, and you know, it, we really are, I, I think the free speech aspect of everything, which it, it's at the heart of everything, as we've said many times, America is free speech. If you just said, what's America? Aliens. Come discover our planet in 68 billion millennia. They're going to say, you know, those Americans, it was all about free speech. Because if people can talk to each other and speak truth or speak what they think is truth, it's amazing how society, you know, just stumbles along into better and better places instead of being dragged into worse and worse places. One of the fun little uh, tidbits of information in this piece is that uh, the word disinformation was kind of coined by Stalin. That is, Stalin's regime had a word in Russian, which I won't try to pronounce precisely. I'm not a Russian speaker, but disinformation was an idea, and he approved. <laughs> you know, that's the interesting thing, is that the government would have a a bureau that would deal with disinformation because it's it's always been governments who are doing disinformation, especially in any consequential, huge way. And it's not as if, uh, I always joke in my family, my wife and I were born the same year. She was born after me, which means that I'm always older than she is. But I created enough, you know, just doubt in the kids' minds about who was really older. That years ago, my youngest was probably 20. And I said, well, now who's older? Do you know who's older, your mom or me? And she looked at me and said, I'm really not sure. And I thought, victory, victory in the disinformation war. But that's that's kind of different disinformation. And um, and and governments other than me and my wife and my age, it's been largely governments who do this sort of thing. The Nazis, uh, the the you know communist Chinese right now, uh, all kinds of people, including the United States of America and the UK and Germany, and I mean governments, they have official lies, and that's you know that's the most potent form of disinformation. Most often, when private people make mistakes, and they're mistakes, 
They're not bald-faced lies. Now, I'm not talking about politicians. I'm talking about most normal people. Politicians, it's, you know, they make mistakes, but sometimes they're purposeful. But they're, it's misinformation because they were wrong, but they were honest mistakes. And let's face it, there were a lot of doctors, you know, in the 1700s who did good for people, but were also bleeding them, which didn't do any good at all. In fact, it, you know, it didn't do any good at all. Except and for one disease. Hemophilia? Hemochromatosis. Ah. <laughs> uh -huh. The excessive iron a disease. I may I may have the wrong name for it because it's been a long time. You have you haven't boned up your medical license? That's that's one of the things I'm not very good at. Uh but anyway, yeah, and, and your point here is that the information governance board is pretending to uh sort of take ownership of the ideas of the people of America when the real disinformation problem is the government of America. Right. There's a number of things you suggest in the piece. One is that this is a really good case for uh uh, suing the government on the grounds of the First Amendment. That is, that somehow we have to stop this board. Uh, yes, yes. But when I was on Twitter right after this, you know, just probably before you wrote your piece, I suggested that a board named like this could be useful, but it would be against the disinformation already spread by government or spread about the government. It would be nice if the government would like clear up Like a fact checker. Yeah, but a fact checker of the government. Yes, yes, yes. And I mean, I wouldn't mind that. And I don't. I don't even. I don't think that's that's not at all a problem. And in fact, I kind of want to get to Wednesday's piece: UFOs and other foes, because there we deal with a problem that's been about disinformation for seventy years. Apparently, yeah. the government's been lying to us for a long time, and just causing confusion about that's a subject that's really weird. And it would be nice if there were somebody who would come clean on all sorts of information that we don't know the status of. And it's like we we don't know so much about UFOs. The one thing we know that's crystal clear is we've been lied to and and not told uh, things that the government has known for a long time. And so it, it is it to me, it's a very interesting subject because you wonder you, you can't help but wonder what else are they not telling us? And why have they not told us any of this stuff? And, and we, we now know, especially uh, in this day and age, that they don't think we're quite up to being fully informed. And that's, that's part of the whole crisis of, of uh, free speech. Because if people think it's better to keep most of the folks dumb, and and just tell them what will get them excited to vote the way that we want you to vote. You know, that's that's what they're going to do. And that's it's, it's very problematic. Most of them don't know diddly squat. I mean, it's not as if the president of the United States knows anything about this subject other than what he's been told. Right. I mean, he's been told right. a few things. We do know that Obama and Biden were informed about UFOs during their the late part of their uh, uh, tenure in office, but what they were told, we don't know. And, and the occasion of your piece was the recent info dump, uh, that I believe it was the sun, uh, did a FOIA request yes. related to a tip and similar programs, uh, that was, uh, Harry Reid got started in Congress to get some information out about what's going, you know, what's going on here. You know, the other story that sometimes this reminds me of, because this is, is, it goes back so far and us not getting information is the Kennedy uh, assassination. And, and the fact that 50 years after that, more than 50 years after that, 
Donald Trump is in a position to let all of it come out and still they hold some of the information back. That's the indicator that something weird is going on. That he, you know, before he was in office, he knew nothing, right? Just like you and I, we don't really know anything right. about it. So he wanted to get it all out there, which is a reasonable, you know, poor the people kind of thing. And that's and why the, they shot Kennedy was that uh, he was trying to, you know, it, it, when you don't know anything's anything's possible. Well, I'm just saying is that but here's the here's something that I, I think people should just for a minute file this away in the noggin. And that is when you were talking about Obama and Biden, of course, it's true for every president, it's not just them. They know what they're told. And that is they're the decision maker. But in some ways, if you get to decide all the information for the decision maker or you get to be the decision maker, I'm kind of thinking the guy who provides all the information has got the has got the power. And so it's and people talk about, you know, and I've been close to anybody who's been in office, governor, senator and people around them. They talk about the bubble that people live in and it's it's how they can lose their way. And I I think that's, you know, that's not really the key part of this story or the or the Homeland Security, you know, disinformation censorship board. (laughs) But uh, but it it's part of this whole thing. And it's why I mean, I think we've gotten to a point where used to be you had a lot more people, it seems, talk about secrecy and the dangers of that. And I think we've become so used to it and that that now it's well, the intelligence community is saying this. And, you know, if you've ever read more than one newspaper ever in your life, you've got to know well, these people can't, I mean, they get it wrong all the time. It's why when it comes to medical stuff, as we've harped on for the you know last couple of years of our, our wonderful pandemic, deciding that you know truth and silencing everybody else is a big problem because people are mistaken sometimes, even people who have all kinds of knowledge. And then, of course, in the case of the pandemic, it's obvious that they decided to push one solution, that is the vaccines, to the exclusion of other solutions. And that, once that decision is made, but you still, everybody knew we had less information than we wanted about everything, right? right? So that's a really interesting problem. How many, we should ask ourselves, how many of the major issues that we think about are the result or are made problematic because we're given information that mainly only conforms to a decision already made or a policy in place. Yes. Yes. I mean, that's a real problem, isn't it? Well, look at the, you know, I had had COVID extremely mild case, most mild sickness I've ever, I think I've ever had in my life. And, um, and I had certain antibodies. And so the vaccine comes out and I figure I'm going to end up having to take it anyway, because I wanted to go to this thing that was in London and they're going to require that I, you know, and, and I wasn't, you know, horrified at the vaccine. I hadn't talked to you enough, Tim, but, but, uh, but it was, it was the sort of thing that I kind of wanted more information on what, how does it work that I have my own antibodies? Maybe I don't need this vaccine. And it was as if I wasn't supposed to wonder that or ask that. And it was if the 
the impulse was always that the vaccines were going to be better. And that doesn't seem to have any historical evidence behind the vaccines are always better than natural antibodies. And it seemed to all be because that's what we're supposed to be saying, because we're supposed to believe the vaccine is is a cure, even though, you know, I don't think that that you'll find the vaccine maker saying this is a cure and will solve all the problems. But politically, we were peddled that the whole time that the just wait for the vaccine, it'll be magic. And I think to this day, they haven't really come out and said, yeah, these vaccines are not as good as we'd hoped. They're really not like the, the Chinese vaccine uh, is supposed to be kind of 50 percent effective, which sounds really bad. But, you know, it, it may be better than nothing, especially if it doesn't have big downside side effects that are damaging. But but. You know, we were told early on it's 96 and 95 percent effective and so on. And I think uh, I'm not sure that that's that that's held up. Of course, how would I know? Because there's no critical discussion of that, because that's un-American and unpatriotic and salute the chief medical officer who will tell us all about our bodies and what we're supposed to do. So it's it's uh, the. You know, in in some ways, free speech when it comes to medical affairs is uh, is is really every bit as important as free speech in political affairs. I certainly agree with that. You know, for some of us, like me, I think free speech made sense to me at age eight. I, I mean, I think I've been a committed... took you that long, huh, Tim? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I'm pretty sure. I'm, I'm trying to think back. We don't. Don't you ever think about it? when did you start believing this or that? And maybe it's different for you because you had a family who kind of shares your current values. I didn't have a family yes. like that at all uh, because we had disagreement in the family about politics. And so we and we didn't talk about politics much. But free speech made sense to me quite early, maybe because I like Thomas Jefferson. And I don't know why did I like Thomas Jefferson so young? I don't know. I, it, it's funny because you, you think back to those different memories and of course memories change over time, but I remember going to school and you're right. I mean, my, my parents are free spirits in a sense and very conservative religiously, politically, socially, but believed in freedom. And, and, uh, and I remember going to school and thinking, why did my parents send me here? <laughs> you know, they usually don't stick me in, in places like this. And so we've covered three of the five pieces just well, like and, that. And it seems and, like it we've we've really gone fast. I don't know. Well, we've been speaking very quickly, and I think that that should become our uh, no, I'm just kidding. But but hey, well, we got the education. And uh, so that's a good thing. Yeah, no, that gets to your to your main third piece, education fraud. And and it's it's interesting to me, the whole, should we pay off student loans and so on? I know so many people who are just feeling crushed by student loans. They've just paid all this money off. And they were indeed told by all kinds of people again and again and again and again in a mantra, in a in an institutional just push to go to college that you're going to be, you're going to make all this money. It's a brilliant decision and encouraged to take out loans and so on. And, and so, you know, you hate to see that situation. And then of course, on the other hand, um, you know, I have kids that, that, you know, 
we paid some money to help go to school. Luckily, they, they got some money on their own here and there, which was always helpful. But um, we didn't take out loans. We, you know, took from savings and we did different things to be able to do that. And um, and so when the government decides, well, we're going to forgive loans and that'll be this much less to the Treasury, there is some, you know, OK, so I'm going to pay more. But partly I'm going to pay more because I made these sacrifices to be able to to pay for it. And, and of course, you know, some people are in a position where they couldn't have paid for it, even if they made those sacrifices, they would have had to take out the loans. Everybody's different. There's a, you know, there's 330 million people in America and there's 330 million different stories, but it just, there's a certain injustice there. It's also, it's a transfer again from the poor to the rich largely because people who go to college are richer and everyone's going to pay it. And there's more poorer people and they do pay taxes on all kinds of things they buy and all kinds of other ways. And, and, Sometimes you want to say to liberals who care about the poor that if every political decision you make is for the poor to pay for the rich, then somehow your, you know, your deep sympathy for the poor is really great. I mean, your intentions are great, but you're screwing them up. And uh, so that it's bad in that way. But I think that that the more we talk about it, we have to kind of say, how did we get here? Who, who why do we have a, a program in which people are even talking about you borrowed money to do this thing? We're gonna, we're gonna bail you out. How did everything get so screwed up that people need bailouts? Well, it got screwed up because the government is pouring money into education. And uh, every time I've been on a college campus, they're building, it's like, get out of the way, we're building a new building here, and we're building a new building there. It's just flush with cash to study basket weaving. <laughs> I mean, that's why these things happen is because there's a lot of fat and a lot of luxury. And, you know, I, I don't remember, you know, I, I do remember people working their way through school when I was a kid, but they were already a kid, a you know, teenager, 20 something they were already talking about how much tougher it was. And the cost of the college I went to for the longest period of time, they allowed me to stay at a college. Um, it was, is literally now more than 10 times what it was then. This is late seventies, early eighties. And, um, and so, you know, th there's, there has been, a crime committed against our educational system. And I think there has been some fraud, but if we're going to bail out anybody because they have been harmed in some way, we first need to identify how they were harmed and who harmed them. Because I don't think we can afford to bail it out without figuring out all the ramifications. And what we're going to find out is that we need to stop telling kids that they should go to college no matter what, that we really ought to maybe stop telling people wild things like that and start asking these kids, what do you want out of life? What would you like to learn? You know, here's some stats. 
what do you want to do with the realities you find in this world instead of we have a national system of education. We need this many doctors and this many lawyers. Look, the marketplace will pay for the folks we need the most and people who are money motivated. And that seems to be almost everybody is going to react to that. Now, it doesn't mean they're going to do something they hate if they're smart. Um, some people are going to cut against the grain on either this way or that way. But, you know, it's not as if we have to have every decision made in Washington for everybody at the same time. Everyone needs to go into STEM, you know, these sorts of things. There's sometimes truth to some of them that, yes, that's the direction we need to go. But if you do it as a, you know, as a, as a nation where everyone is doing it for, you know, some cause that they invented in Washington, we're headed to trouble again and again. In fact, every single time, always. That leaves us one piece that we that you wrote. And this is a piece that I think you wrote before all the other pieces. And it's been in the hopper, ready to go up on the website for quite a while. So once again, my memory is failing. And I, I can see the title. It says Freedom in Granite. It was published on Thursday. Yes. The day we're recording this, actually, in case anyone really were cared about that. I don't see why they would. Uh, but yeah, uh, there could be protests erupting now. They really have gotten, you know, they'd like <laughs> it to be on Friday as a regular thing. But um, freedom of granite, what is that about? Well, the granite state is New Hampshire, also the live free or die state. And uh, so far, people in New Hampshire are opting for live free. Uh, so, you know, occasionally some do die, but they try not to. And uh I, I love New Hampshire. It's a neat state. Um, I, I was up there petitioning numerous times when I was a, a young fella. And uh, and my sister now lives there. And I've done some work up there at, at different points. We got term limits through the New Hampshire legislature back in the 1990s, right before the court struck down in U.S. term limits versus Thornton, five to four, struck down uh, those 20 uh, at that point, 24 or 23 state uh, term limit laws. And and so, you know, uh, New Hampshire, I we lobbied a lot of states. It was the only state we lobbied that passed term limits on Congress. Uh, and and one of the reasons I remember meeting with some of the leadership in the House and kind of, <laughs> kind of they didn't have any interest and I remember we're leaving the meeting and we're kind of, you know, down and, well, it doesn't look like we have much of a shot. And the, the governor of New Hampshire says, oh, what's the matter what they say? Um, and, of course, in most legislatures, well, it will never come up unless you've got their, you know, unless they've kissed the ring um, and or you've kissed it or something. I, anyway, uh, the the uh, the truth is with 400 members in the House that body moves by public opinion much more than any house I've ever seen. And this piece is about, uh, I noticed that the Cato Institute had named, and this is a, a little while ago, had named like a year ago, named uh, Chris Sununu, the best governor in America. Uh, and, you know, that's a something. And then they also did a survey of the states on a number of different metrics and found New Hampshire to be the freest state in the country. And they interviewed Governor Sununu and asked him, you know, well, what, what's this about? 
And he pointed to a number of things. It wasn't just the legislature. Uh, he pointed out the fact that they had an executive council that actually publicly met with the governor to decide whether or not any spending of $10,000 or more was going to be approved. Um, I mean, they're serious about, you know, not letting people in government just run crazy and spend and do whatever they want. And that it has ramifications. So uh, that was kind of neat. But he and he talked about town, uh, you know, town hall type government where people really do have influence. But the thing he pointed out, I think, most importantly, was their house, their 400 member house. The average district in New Hampshire is 3000 constituents. And what, you know, that, you know, that sounds kind of interesting. Oh, you, I mean, you'd know your Congress, your, your state legislator, that that's, you know, that's pretty good. Uh, but it also like people who talk about camping, find it big money has too much control. And, you know, there's a lot of big money out there and money, money counts. Um, but I, I find that there tends to be money on both sides and that it's not as if, you know, everything's being decided by who spent the most. Yet I'm still concerned about, you know, uh, money having more influence than I'd like it to. All the campaign finance laws put together and, and times 10 haven't had the impact in most of their impacts been negative that this sort of small district has on spending in new hampshire if you decide you're going to spend some big money in this 3000 person district what are you going to do with it you spend very much on ads hitting your opponent they may not even like your opponent but they know who he is you're not going to do your scare 30 second scare ads and move anybody except against you and it just creates it's an environment where you can't spend a ton of money because they know this person. He knocked on their door. In fact, with 3,000 people, if, if he's been running for the last six months, he may have knocked on their door four or five times and they've seen him at the market. And, and, and you know, you look at that and think, okay, maybe that works for New Hampshire. But I submit that it'll work. I, I don't buy this. You can't have freedom and democracy in large states, you can only have them in small states. Now, it does make sense to cut down the jurisdictions to small and manageable things, but that's what we're talking about. And and uh, someone at the website said, you know, you'd have 11,000 uh, uh, people in the, in the California legislature if the districts were that small. Now, I don't think that's true. I think it's 6,000, but, but I could be wrong. And maybe that's, that's some other body that you do the math on. But if I could move California to anything I, I, you know, I got to choose, I'd have 30,000 people districts. And just because the state is so big that, you, you know, you don't you don't want there to be 6,000 legislators. That doesn't make as much sense as there only being a few where they can all talk together. The problem is, do you want the connectiveness in that small group of politicians off in the Capitol away from you? Or do you want the connectedness between the citizen and the person who's supposed to be representing them? And I think that uh, for Congress, you know, we could end up with a Congress that instead of 435 is 6,000, let's say, 4,000. Um, and I don't think that would be 
unwieldy. Not anymore. I mean, you have to look at Congress today. Is that wieldy? I don't think so. It's unwieldy. And uh, and and what would this be? Well, this would mean you'd break off into groups. You do all kinds of different things. You'd probably vote from your district. You don't want all these people hanging out in Washington all the time. They would come back together, but they would come back together for certain periods of time that were short. I like that. I like them being around lobbyists for very short periods of time and being around us for most of the time and voting oftentimes and then walking out of their car to the street where everybody knows who they are and getting in their car and driving to their regular home instead of going out and being interviewed by all the Washington press corps. I I like the idea of a congressman from Alabama or, you know, Seattle, Washington being interviewed by people in their state and not always worrying about what the New York Times or the Washington Post has to say. And, you know, there's all kinds of reasons for this, but uh, but I, I think that the campaign finance is a huge one because all of this, you know, minimizing the impact of money is not anti-First Amendment. There's no, there's no new rules. There's no new government agency. There's no police force telling people what they can say or not say. We just create a, a, an election system and a and a uh, representative system in which doing obnoxious things with big money is no longer effective. And I can trust you, people who have money don't like to waste it. So it's it's uh, these sorts of things. And you don't have to take my word for it. Look at look at the elections in California where the average House seat is half a million people. And look at the elections in New Hampshire, where the average House seat is 3,000 people. And and look at where there's more spending and nastiness. It's in California, not New Hampshire. You didn't mention splitting up California as an option either, but that would decrease the problem. I mean, we don't want to have 11,000 people in Congress in a body, really, in the Assembly. But if there were a Jefferson, a North California, a South California, and a West California, uh, that would be four states in the place of one. And uh, that could make a lot of sense, right? It seems to me. Yes. Yes. But I would, I guess my point is, I would do this even if you kept California the same size, that that it's important that the districts be small and that you have this connected representation. We talk about America as a representative democracy, and it seems to me that it's a constitutional representative democratic republic, and meaning that there are certain constitutional limits but of course, those are only as good as the the judges and police. And you know, I mean, the society can lose all that constitutional stuff overnight. You the the main part of government, the first branch is the Congress, the legislature. And if that is disconnected and like it is, I mean, we talk about representative government. None of us really feel very represented. And and, you know, that just it's, it's not going to last long. And we have to, I, I think that's one of the key things that, that uh, when I used to go to different conferences, uh, it seemed like in the, in the uh, late 90s, there was a lot of talk about the initiative process and how dangerous it was because you could do stuff like term limits. And, um, but it, it, 
you know, when they, they would always have different fixes for it, which was usually let's give it this poison or that poison, that'll help. Um, but at a couple of these conferences, I said, you know, if we ought to start spending just a little bit of time talking about representative government, which has become nothing more than a euphemism for unrepresentative government. And the reason that you're complaining about too much use of the initiative is because the people have rightfully figured out this is a way where we could actually get something done where we control as it should be. And the legislatures are dysfunctional. And so, you know, I thought that we spent all this time kind of trying to fine tune, usually with kind of a negative big power effort to, to undermine the initiative process that largely is, the, is a functioning governing process. And we ignore the governing processes that are completely dysfunctional. And I think that's the way people feel about Congress. I think it's also the way they feel about their state legislature. And it's hard, <laughs> hard to think of any cases in which it's not true. And if there is one, it's probably the legislature in New Hampshire. Well, on that note, I think you've covered your basic theme of your career almost. So I think we could wrap up the podcast and uh, wish everybody a nice weekend. No singing, no, no dancing. Singing, no singing, no dancing. All right. You're, I'm with you. Let's okay. do it. it. And we will be back next next week, next year, next millennium. And, 